Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. I'm grateful that you you guys are here. We um we get I, Jimbo and Mandy. I'm thinking you guys. I know in Arlene, you guys are here in the service. Uh, we had a great 9 a.m. service, and uh, I met several campers. Of course, this is the opening weekend, as I'd mentioned, of the campground, and I met several campers, and, and one family in particular. And uh, when I got to preaching the gospel towards the end, I, I looked up and I, I saw a mama from the campground looking at me and had saying she'd given her heart and her life to Jesus. And I thought, man, you know what? This makes church, coming out to church on a Memorial Day weekend really worth it, doesn't it? Watching how Jesus changes hearts and lives already on opening weekend. I'm, I'm just so grateful that you're here and we get to do this as part together. Now we are in week two in a series of messages simply entitled Jonah, a time where God said go and Jonah said no. And you love, you love baby. All right. Thank you, son. I appreciate that. Okay. Terry, watch that guy right there behind. Make sure. Okay. I said, hey, there's a series of messages in Jonah entitled when God said go and Jonah said no. It, you hate salad. I think a lot of you. I mean, me too. Lawn clippings in a bag. I don't get it. Thank, thank you, son. I appreciate that. I'm going to get through with a message. Okay. Here we go. All right. Week two, series of Jonah when God said go and Jonah said no. We get Krispy Kremes of the devil. Hey, security, tase this guy. Get him out of this Krispy Kreme. Hey, listen, that's David. He is one of our new e interns from Southeast. I'll make sure I get that right. I love him. He was one of my students in Charlotte. And you know what? Here's, here's what he helps me to highlight today. Aren't disruptions annoying? Aren't they always awkward? Like, have you ever been in a crowd and there's a disruption and it's, it's not either awkward or annoying as we just thankfully, thank you intern for pointing that out to us today, how awkward and annoying it can be. But you know what a disruption does and what his disruption did this morning? It caught everybody's attention. I'm in the lights, I've got a microphone on, I'm on the stage, but the minute he stood up and said, I love bacon, everybody looked at him. And it grasped everybody's attention. It grabbed everybody's attention. And you know, that's what disruptions do. And today in scripture, we are gonna find a divine disruption in the life of a prophet who desperately needed God to disrupt his life. And by doing so, we are gonna learn the very same for your life and my life. We, we've been in the book of Jonah where the very heartbeat and the mission of God has been on display. His heartbeat, his mission to redeem humanity, to save the sinner, to forgive the unforgivable in a person's heart and in their life. Now, what we try to do oftentimes with the story of Jonah is we try to make it about our mascot here, right? We try to make it about this guy. It's always about the well, isn't it? And this is safe because what we like to do, even in our children's ministries, we like to make this a colorful, cartoony depiction of a biblical event because here's the hopes, you ready? That the more we can make it about this guy, the less and less effect that this story has in your life and in my life. The more we can make it about this guy, the less and less it exposes the Jonah in me and the Jonah you that is very much alive and well. Because here's what we understand. The book of Jonah, four times this guy's mentioned. 
18 times, Jonah is mentioned. But hear me, 37 times, God himself is mentioned in the book of Jonah. You know what's a reminder for us today? That God is not only the hero of this story, but he's the very hero of your story and my story and always is. The point of this book is not about a well, but about a great loving and compassionate God. And we see that played out in the life in the book of Jonah. Now, last week we began talking about Jonah and diving into this book. And we didn't really do much with this well. Because before we were to look at Jonah in the well, it's important for you and I not to go on a fishing expedition, but to go on the hunt for the Jonah in you and the Jonah in me, that very sin nature, that tendency in all of us when it comes to God to rebel against him, that sin nature in all of us when God calls us to do something, to reject it and to run the other way. And so last week we began this hunt for the Jonah in you and the Jonah in me. And here's what we begin to uncover about Jonah. We found his fatal flaw. And that was that Jonah had a deep hatred for the Ninevites or as a people as a whole, the Assyrians. A very deep hatred for the Ninevites. They were the arch enemy of God's people. In fact, his hatred was so great for the Ninevites that it eclipsed his love for God. And how is that evidenced? Well, take your Bibles if you would. And let's go to Jonah chapter one. Now, typically I have the scripture up here on the screen. But some kind of updates happen. <laughs> and I can't quite figure out why it won't do what I want it to do on the screen, right? And so we're just gonna go old-fashioned in the Bible. And if you say, man, I didn't bring a Bible with me, just open up that phone, download an app, and just follow right along with me, okay? Jonah chapter one. And let's see how this is evidenced, his run and his rebellion, how it outweighed his love for God. In verse one, the Bible says, in the word of, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. In verse two, go to the great city of Nineveh. Now let's stop there for a minute. God's word to Jonah was to go. Hey, by the way, that's the very same command we have in Christ today. To go, Matthew chapter 28, to go into all the world, right? Teaching them to obey everything he's commanded them. Where they go there, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded them. And surely he's with us always to the very end. The very command we find in Jonah's life on behalf of God is the very same command that we have in Jesus Christ to carry out. God says, go to Jonah, to the great city. Now, we gotta be reminded that this city wasn't great because of their character. This city was great because of their size. They were a large city. In fact, Jonah would say in his own book that it would take some three days to go through all the suburbs. They were a great size in their population. Over 120,000 people lived in this Assyrian capital of Nineveh. They were great in their strength. They were great in their size of their army. They were great in everything but their character. Thus, this is why God begins to deal with the Ninevites. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Now, now you gotta understand this about Nineveh. Nahum, the prophet in the Old Testament, gives us a picture of this city. He calls it a bloody city. A city full of prostitutes and idolatry and a city just full of wickedness. And in fact, the Bible goes on and says this in verse two. Go preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And so what God is doing is God is extending his grace and his mercy, his compassion to the people of Nineveh. But here's where the story starts getting a little hairy. Look at verse three. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now listen, God was calling Jonah to go to the east 500 miles, about a month's travel, and preach to Nineveh. Instead, Jonah hops in a boat and starts traveling 2,500 miles to Tarshish, which is the furthermost point in the ancient Mediterranean world to which he could really physically run from God. 
And the Bible says this in a story. He went down to Joppa, a little port city, found a ship bound for that port. And the Bible says, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Hey, can I remind you of something real quick? When it comes to sin, you and I will always pay the fare. We will always pay the price and the consequences for our sin. Here's something I talked last week about this cycle that happens when you and I engage in sin. That sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you a price that you're not willing to pay. And yes, does the blood of Jesus forgive us of our sins? Absolutely. But there are some consequences that remain that are pretty ugly sometimes. Take us further than we want to go, keep us longer than we want to stay, and cost us a price that we are not willing to pay. So you know what we begin to see here in scripture as we dive in on Jonah's life and story is we begin to see that God does something that catches the attention of Jonah. It is a divine disruption. And so today, what is our pursuit together? Our pursuit is to look at the loving and desperately needed effects of divine disruption in Jonah's life and discover the need that you and I have for God to disrupt our lives divinely when we run from him, when we rebel against him. So let's define two terms real quick this morning. Number one, divine. That means from or of God. And then we have this word disruption, and that simply is an interruption in one's plans or one's course. It's designed to grab Jonah's attention. Now let's take a look at the text. If you have your Bibles in Jonah chapter one, verse four, look at what the Bible says. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Hey, did you catch the divine disruption in, in verse four? Did you catch God's interjection into Jonah's story? Do you catch God's disruption into Jonah's story? Well, first of all, we find the word great is used here again. At first it was used to describe the size of Nineveh. Now it's used to describe the very, um, the actions of God. And we begin to see that as God plays this out, there's a great wind that God sends that serves as his divine disruption in Jonah's running rebellion against God. The storm was spoken into existence by God to grab the attention of Jonah. Here's what I jotted down. It is a reminder that the plan of a sovereign God to redeem humanity has not and will not be thwarted because of the stubbornness of a puny prophet. Isn't that good to know? Isn't it good to know that no one can mess up God's plan for the salvation of humanity? And the Bible says this, so the Lord sent a great wind. Hey, hey, just in case there were any questions, just in case there was any speculation that existed out there, there was, this was no fluke storm. This storm wasn't something that just came up by accident. Rather, it was by God's design. This wasn't the effects of the devil or fate or some crazy weather pattern or some happenstance. God sent the wind and the storm. God sent them both as a divine disruption in Jonah's running rebellion in his life. And as we are going to uncover, we find that this is an act of love and an act of God's grace in a prophet's life who was rebelling greatly against the Lord. I love this reminder in Psalm chapter 24. Jot this down, verse 1. The Bible says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it 
on the waters. It's a reminder, hey guys, listen, that the earth is his. And before we get too distracted by Jonah's disobedience, be reminded that the winds and the seas and the storms, they all obey him. And I'm reminded of a similar storm. Think of this in the New Testament, Luke chapter eight, verse 23. Jesus and the disciples, they begin to take sail. The Bible says that Jesus fell asleep and a storm came down on the lake in Luke chapter eight, verse 23, so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him up saying, master, master, we are going to drown. And he got up and listen to what, he rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm, it subsided and all was calm. And he looks at the disciples and says, where is your faith? And in fear and amazement, the disciples looked at one another and said, who is this? Who is this? That he commands even the winds and the waters, they obey him. I remind you of this story because we need to stop for a moment and be reminded that not every storm that comes in our life is a divine disruption. That's not what was going on here today. In Jesus' life, in Luke chapter 8, as he stood there, that wasn't a divine disruption into his life because of the sins of the disciples. Rather, it was a storm because things happen on a world that has been marred and corrupted by sin and storms happen. But watch what's amazing. And this is what uniquely Jesus does, that Jesus is more than able to speak peace to any storm that rages in your life and my life. That he always won't calm the storm around us, but he will always, if we are willing calm the storms in us. And he is willing to do that. Not everything's a divine disruption. Not everything is just an attempt at God to, to grab your attention in your sin and rebellion, but there does exist in the life of every believer, in the life of every prophet we find here in Jonah, this act of a loving God to divinely disrupt when we find ourselves running from him in rebellion. Look at this in verse four. It says, the ship threatened to break apart. Hey, by the way, ships can't threaten anything, right? What we find here is not only in the English languages we read it, but if you go all the way back to the Hebrew, God personifies the boat. You say, Matthew, what does it mean to personify? It's to give something that is not human, human-like characteristics or qualities. And so the ship threatened to break up. Let me give you an example, just a, a random sentence of a personification. The stars danced playfully in the moonlit night. Well, there's a couple of problems here. Stars can't dance, right? Nor can they do it playfully. It's, right, it's personifying stars. Well, that's exactly what we find here with this boat. Ships don't determine anything, yet this ship was determined to break apart in contrast to the disobedient prophet named Jonah. And here's what it's a reminder, that the wind, the sea, and even the ship are obeying the will of God when the very prophet of God doesn't. And it comes up to this question, Jonah, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that when God says go, who are you to say no? The wind obeys me. The sea obeys me. The ship obeys me. Jonah, who are you? I look at this story and I think that it is the act of a loving God to divinely disrupt your life and my life in order to save us. You see, Jonah's greatest enemy wasn't Nineveh. It wasn't the great wind or the great storm that came on the seas. It wasn't the seas themselves. Jonah's greatest enemy was himself, was his sin. 
What's his rebellion? What's his running from God? And so what God does is he sends this divine disruption in his life to grab his attention, to lovingly save him from himself. And I tell you what, church, man, I need that in my life. I need God to interject himself into my story when I'm running from him, when I'm rebelling against him, when I'm in sin that's going to destroy me. I need that divine disruption. You say, well, listen, just like David's standing up a little bit annoying and awkward when these divine disruptions come, think of a fate worse, worse than that. What would it be if God just looked at you and, and your path of destruction and sin and rebellion and running and he left you to your own demise? I can think of a fate far worse than God sending a divine disruption, and that is God giving me over to the destruction and demise that sin brings in my life. Divine disruptions don't look so bad when you think of it that way, do they? They carry a whole different weight to them. I love this. When it comes to our God, you know, God just doesn't deal with his children in that way. What do I mean? God just doesn't deal with his children in the way that says, you know what? You want to rebel and run against me? Fine. I'm done with you. Aren't you grateful for that? That that's not how God deals, how God works with us in Christ. Rather, because he loves you and me, he divinely disrupts our lives. Look at verse five. It says this, that all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And then they began taking the cargo on the boat Throwing it into the sea to lighten the ship. You know what, guys? I find three tragedies in this one verse. Can I share them with you? Number one, the first tragedy is that men whose sins were not the cause of the storm or the great wind, these men were terribly afraid. Can I remind you something about sin? Sin always has casualties. There's always casualties to sin. That's just what it does. It wasn't the cruise sin that brought upon this storm. It wasn't their sin that God, was, that God was judging. It was Jonah's sin. But here's what we uncover about sin and how it works. Sin always has consequences and always has casualties. Sin hurts everyone it touches, and it destroys everything it sets its sight on. And you know that, don't you? Is there, is there one of us who've not seen that play out in our lives? Destroys everything. Just hurts everyone it touches. We've all known that. We've all seen that. The second tragedy is this. Not only there's always casualties to our sin, but, but oh, the tragedy of a God who does not and who cannot answer. Think of it. These men were afraid. They were ancient Phoenicians. They were the seafarers in all of humanity. We look back and go, man, they were incredible out on the open ocean. And here are these men who had seen many of a storm. All of a sudden, they are wrought with such great fear in their hearts and their lives because they were experiencing a storm like nothing else they had ever experienced before. And that's saying much for these seafarers. They'd seen storms come on the horizon, yet this one comes from nowhere. They had seen wind before, but this wind was divine in and of its essence. This storm was bidding a master, and they knew not his name. They were scared to death. They knew something was wrong. 
And in probably one of the most terrifying experiences in their lives, these men called out to gods who did not answer. In church, they could not answer. There was no hope. Their gods didn't show up. Their gods offered no hope in the most terrifying of moments. But you know, here's the great hope we celebrate today in Jesus. That he's the only one who can send a storm. He's the only one who can speak peace over a storm. And he's the only one who always answers the cry of his people. Jesus always shows up. May not be in the way we thought him to, but it's always the best way. Jesus always shows up. Here's the third tragedy. We see people trying to save themselves. In verse 5, what happened? When their gods didn't answer, what did they take to doing? What any mariner would do. They started throwing that cargo over the side of the boat to help stabilize the boat in hopes that a lighter ship wouldn't sink. They started throwing cargo overboard. They were trying to save themselves when their gods did not answer their cries for help. And I'm going to tell you something. Man, it's just a reminder to me. It's just a, a reinforcement of this idea that, guys, there is nothing that you and I can do to save ourselves from the sin that has risen up, that is battering against our hearts and our lives. There's nothing we can do. You can't throw enough cargo overboard in your life to save yourself from the wrath of God against sin. Because we're reminded of this in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to by mankind by which we must be saved. And it's a reminder, even as I look at the story of Jonah, that Jesus alone saves. That Jesus alone saves. No matter the storm, no matter how much we've tried to save ourselves and throw the cargo overboard, that Jesus and Jesus alone can save. Now as the storm rages on in Jonah chapter one, we're gonna find that our brave prophet is on the main deck of the boat. And here's what he's doing. He's fighting with the crew to save the ship. Actually, he's not. This is not what the Bible says. Shocker, right? Sadly, we come to expect this from Jonah in just a few couple verses that we know of him. Surely he's not up there fighting. The Bible says this, in verse number six, it says, it's verse five leading verse six, it says this, but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and he fell into a deep sleep. I don't, under, I don't understand it. How does he go to sleep? First of all, on a ship that's traveling 2,500 miles away from God. Here's the reason why I went on one deep sea fishing trip. We got in the boat about 12 midnight. We were going to go out in the ocean about eight hours. We are going to drop the lines and fish all day. You know what I couldn't do? Sleep. You know what else I couldn't do? Stop throwing up. The whole time, man. Chum to water. The entire time. Um, I, was, I was catching, I don't even know I'm going here. So I caught a fish probably a lot bigger than this one. Uh, anyway, man, I, I'll never forget. I, I snagged, it was a 49-pound amberjack, okay? Um, so pretty much Moby Dick. Anyway, and so the whole time, I'm finding this thing for about 30, 45 minutes whole time I'm just throwing up over the side. And it was beautiful. I don't know why I loved it. Anyway, so I, how, does, how does this guy sleep? Not only is he in the, in the belly of a boat, but now he is, he is facing a terrible storm, but the Bible says that he falls into a deep sea, sleep. If you were to study the diaries of sailors who would go out on the open sea in antiquity, 
One of the things that you would notice that most of them dealt with was the severe isolation of being out on the water. Even though there was a crew, even though there were other men, even women at times on the, on the ship, there was an isolation of being out in the middle of nowhere on this great ocean that was far bigger than they were. And you would read it in their diaries. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of crazy how bad they wrestled with that notion. But not Jonah. He was counting on the isolation. Why? Because he was doing everything he could to hide from God, to play hide and seek with God. And he was in the belly of a boat, a boat that was taking him far from Nineveh and the call of God. And the Bible says that he went down to the lowest part of the deck. Listen, he climbed deeper than any man could climb in that boat. And there he was as far away from God as he could possibly position himself. Have you ever been there? You ever been through a season in your life where and the sin that you were wrestling with and in hurt your relationship with the Lord and you did everything you could to get as far away from him. Listen, I've been there. And I tell you, it's hard to sleep there. It's even harder to stay there. But here's where we find Jonah. Look what verse six says. And the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep, right? The question of the morning, how in the world are you sleeping? He says, get up, call on your God, and maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. How ironic is it that a pagan captain of a ship has to wake up a prophet of God and call on him to pray? You ever thought about that? How crazy is this story developing that a pagan captain has to wake up the prophet of God and challenge him to pray so that they all don't go down with the ship. I love this thought. Well, he was, why was he sleeping? The Hebrew word there in the deep sleep is also the same word used as, as, as God would put Adam in a deep sleep, take his rib and form Eve. So we understand that this guy's not just napping. This guy is out. And I begin to think, why was he so exhausted from running from God that he just had to sleep? Hey, God, hey church, can I remind you that it is exhausting work running from God? It'll wear you out. It'll, it'll destroy you. So maybe he was just exhausted in his run from God. Maybe the truth is, is he was sickened by the waves as they battered the ship, right? That would have been my testimony. I would have said, you know, I was just so sick, my body wanted to die, right? And I'm sleeping. Maybe God knocked him out. I, I don't know. But I find a prophet who slept well on a ship that represented his security, his safe space. Think of it. Here was the very ship that he had paid for that would take him from Nineveh and the very call of God in his life and hide him from God. You know, when I think of this ship here in, in Jonah chapter one, I find Jonah's security, I find his confidence, and I find his safety net. But here's the problem. God exists to meet every one of those needs in Jonah's life, in your life, in my life. Jonah knew that God was his security, knew he was his confidence, knew as he, that, his, that he was his safety net. And Jonah rebelled against that. Hey, church, can I remind you? You may try to find your security. You may find it, try to find your confidence, your safety net in so many areas of this life. But honestly, when things get rough, when the storms rage, we are reminded that God alone is our security, that God alone is our confidence, that God alone is our, our safety net. But Jonah hasn't quite got the message yet. And so in an act of love, 
God began to physically break up and batter the very thing, the very ship that Jonah trusted in more than he trusted in God. Hey, church family, in God's great love for you, he will divinely disrupt your life and he will break up and he will batter the very things in our life that we put above him. And sometimes we look at that and go, man, that's just a harsh thing for God to do. I would argue that it would be even harsher for God not to do it. Even harsher for God not to act in such a loving way. So we find this. In love, these divine disruptions come up in Jonah's life as an act of love, but also something he needed. Hey, hey guys, divine disruptions are an act of our God of love, and it is something you and I desperately need. So what's the end game here? You know what I, You know where you're praying at the end of the service? That God would divinely disrupt our lives where he needs to. But how do we get there? Well, we get there by exposing some truths that we find from the divine disruption we see here in Jonah chapter one. And here's the truth, number one, you ready? That you and I cannot hide from God. His love will always find us. We cannot hide from God. His love for us will always find us and he uses divine disruptions to do so. Consider Hebrews chapter four, verse 13. Nothing in all creation, the Bible says, is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Hey, a passage like that, isn't that just a little troubling? Isn't that just sets you off a little uneasy that God sees everything? He knows everything. If you start kind of diving into that thought, it just, it messes with you a little bit. It's a little troubling. But at the very same time, it is also a humbling truth. Why? Because God has seen it all and he knows it all and he loves us still. Think of that. God has known every jog you've taken away from him. God has known every sin that you've engaged in that's come against him. God has heard and seen every rebellion in your life. And he still loves us. You can't hide from him. His love will always find you. Consider the psalmist David in Psalm 139, verse 7, where he cries out and he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, the Bible says. Your right hand will hold me fast. You can't hide from him. His love will always find you. I, I love my kids. I got four kids. And, uh, man, hide-and-go-seek in our house is so much fun. Uh, you know, I have a, a six-year-old, a five-year-old, a little two-year-old girl, and, and Ben, and he just doesn't hide much yet, but it's coming, right? We, we love playing hide-and-go-seek in our house. How good of a dad would I be? Tonight I went home and said, all right, guys, let's play hide-and-go-seek. Find the best hiding spot you got. Here's the only rule. You can't leave there until Daddy finds you. I count to 30, they're all hidden. I get my truck keys, I go to the Taco Bell and I sit down and just feast on their menu. Go to the movies, take in the latest Avengers movie and leave them hiding, waiting on daddy to find them. That's a pretty rough game of hide and go seek. And it's not the actions of a good and loving dad. 
Do you know the same is true about our God? If I, as a heavenly father, never do that to my kids, how much more will God divinely disrupt and interject himself into your story and my story when our running in rebellion against him seeks to threaten Seems to threaten us. You can't hide from God. His love will always find you. And here's the second truth we learn. You cannot hide your sin from God. He knows it, and he'll always expose it. He knows it, and he'll expose your sin and my sin. So why expose our sin? Is there any more of a cringeworthy thought? here's Here's the truth. You ready? God exposes our sin so that he can dispose of it in our lives. God exposes your sin and my sin so that he can dispose of it in our lives. Look at verse seven. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. Um, Casting lots in the Old Testament was oftentimes used to determine the will of God. There would be sticks that were used with markings or stones that had different writings on it, and they would be thrown into a small area. And whatever happened to show would be interpreted and and that, that will would be followed. And so we see that this very same game is being played on this ship amongst these sailors to see who is responsible for this. And watch this. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. This guy can't catch a break, right? He was sleeping fine. Captain comes and wakes him up. And now they're casting lots. And now somebody's throwing him under the bus. Watch what it says here in Proverbs 16, the cast or the, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is, for the, is from the Lord. You know what that means? God done rigged a game of casting lots to expose the sin in Jonah's life so that God could begin actively working to dispose of it. It exposed his rebellion. It exposed his running from God. And now God is actively at work disposing of it in his life. I'm reminded of this in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. The Bible says this, but if you fail to do this, what is his context? Well, the people of God were to go out and fight for and on behalf of God as they were to go into promised land, but they were hiding away. They were hiding out. They weren't doing what God had called them to do. And so they finally said, okay, God, listen, we're gonna go and fight for you. And here comes this passage. But if you fail to do this, the Lord says, you will be sinning against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. It's a hard thought. But church family, I'm gonna tell you, we need for the Holy Spirit of God to expose our sin in our life so that he can start doing the work of disposing it from our lives. And so Anthony, what, what do we do with a message like this? These divine disruptions. Here it is, you ready? A divine disruption, a divine wind, a divine storm of reminders that even in the midst of our sin and rebellion, God lovingly pursues us, seeks us, and is at work to save us. Now, there's some teaching out there, a cheapened form of Christianity that teaches you that God will never make you do something you don't want to do or never make you uncomfortable in any way or ever confront the sin in your life. And I'm going to tell you something. All you have to do is read Jonah's story to shut up such type preaching and teaching. God loves you more than that. I would offer this, that it is not an act of love, but one of hatred and disregard for a God to not lovingly pursue his creation, his child, when they are engaged in sin and rebellion. Now, I'm a daddy of four, and honestly, we're not to the teenage years yet. Um, 
I'm going to resign from the church during those times, take a mission trip to a far off land, and maybe on this thing right here. Um, we, we don't have, we don't have teenagers yet, but I've worked my whole life with teenagers, and man, I, I know, I know life can be hard, but I think of my, my four kids, and church family, there is nothing that my Avery could ever do that would make me not her daddy. There's no place that she could go that I would not fight for her, that I would not do everything I could possibly do to save her. I think of my Chloe May, and there is nothing on this planet that she could ever do to make her not my daughter. There's no place she could ever hide that I wouldn't go try to find her. I think of my Sadie. The thought that I would ever just leave her is a thought that never occurs to me as her daddy. My son, Bennett, he's only a year old. I love him with everything. And the thought that something could destroy his life and me as his father wouldn't do everything in my power to fight that, to save him, it's a foreign thought to me. And so too do we see the very character of our God. He loves us so much that when sin and rebellion and running from him threatens to destroy our lives, he does everything to divinely disrupt the course and the path we're on to save us. Because he loves us. Can I close with this story? Uh, my father-in-law the other night at one of his concerts, he's, um, he has a rock and roll band, right? He's a rock star, a triumphant quartet. And, and he preaches the gospel every week. And, uh, and he shared this story. And I asked him for permission to, to share this story with you guys. We do that a lot. He preaches a lot. I preach a lot. And, and we kind of swap stories sometimes. And I asked him if I could share this story. It's the story of an older couple who were foster care parents for many, many years. And a young lady, a teenager around the age of 16, landed it in their home. And here's the deal. As she began to get acquainted with this older couple, they fell in love with her. They loved this little girl, and they wanted her as their own. And so they did all the legwork and all the labor, and, and they adopted this young lady. She now has their name, and she has finally been adopted. And as they adopted her, their love for her just multiplied. Well, a few months after adopting her, uh, the husband and wife decided just to get a, a getaway with just them, and, and they'd left her at the house, and, and they went out on a three-day weekend and just enjoyed each other. When they came back, they came back to a house that had been robbed, ransacked, and many things were stolen. They called the police, and the police officer came, and one of his first questions, who else lives in the house? Well, our 16-year-old daughter, have you had contact with her since all of this happened? They said no. And the police officer began to warn them, hey, listen, she might be the very one who robbed your house. Well, a couple days later, she was discovered. She was arrested. And the police officer called this older couple, having found the very things that were stolen from the home and realizing that her and her friends had ransacked and stolen and robbed from the couple. The policeman asked the older couple what they would like for him to do with her. And the older couple said, bring her home. 
And the police officer said, wait, wait a second, she'll do this again. She has a record. This is not her first time. What would you like us to do with her? And again, the couple said, hey, she, we gave her our last name. Bring her home. Well, the police officer again interjected and said, you obviously don't understand. She'll more than likely do this again and again. Why don't you let someone else foster her? Let someone else have this problem. And the old man finally looked at him and said, obviously you don't understand, officer. I gave her my word. I told her that I would never leave her. No matter what, bring her home. You know, the God of Jonah and the God that you and I serve, his son, Jesus Christ, makes that very same promise to us. Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And church, that's not just in the good times. That's in the times that we run and rebel against him. And even there, his promise rings true that I will never leave you. I've promised you that. And so God engages in divine disruptions to grab our attention, to remind us that we can't hide from him. His love will always find us, to remind us that, that he will expose our sins so that he can begin to dispose of its destruction and devastation in our lives. Why? Because he loves us. He loves you. He loves me. For some of you here today, you come into church was, was a divine disruption. You may not even know why you're here today, but God is interjecting in your story to get you here because he loves you. Maybe for the believer today, I have this question for you. What is the Lord divinely disrupting in your life? What, what is it that he's trying to get your attention? What well, sin or running or rebellion exists that God's just trying to grab that attention, trying to save you from? Because here's what happens when these divine disruptions take place. Sometimes we're annoyed and aggravated at them. And maybe this morning, seeing the true love God has for us, that he won't let us hide, that he won't let us run. Maybe you and I could be more attentive and accepting the divine disruptions in our life, knowing that he is trying to save us. Maybe our prayer should be that of Psalm 139, verse 24. God, point out anything in me that offends you. The Bible says, and lead me along the path to everlasting life. Maybe the prayer of every believer ought to be this this morning. God, would you divinely disrupt my life and expose the areas in my heart my life I'm running from you, where I'm rebelling against you, or sin is just destroying everything it touches. What if that was our prayer? And what if we got to that prayer long before God ever sent the great wind? What if we got there long before God ever sent the great storm? What if we got there long before God ever had to break apart that ship? We'd learn to trust him all the more. Let's pray together, can we? Heads bowed and eyes closed. I just wonder if every, every believer in the house would simply pray this. God, if there's any, if there's any way in me that doesn't honor you, God, would you expose it? 
Maybe ask forgiveness. And maybe just trust him all the more. Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.